I want to start off the lesson tonight with a question that Jesus asked that I think has relevance just as much for us today as it did for people in his day. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? <clears throat> Have you ever thought about the word Lord? <clears throat> this is a, a term that we don't hear very often in our society, but yet Jesus thought it was pertinent for him to ask these people, Why do you call me Lord? And then you don't back up your words with your actions. The word Lord is a, is a term that's kind of foreign to our society. And I, I think sometimes we say the word Lord without understanding it. It's foreign to our society, but maybe if you're like me, and you like to watch some of the old Star Wars movies, you might hear people call Darth Vader Lord Vader. And they're acknowledging him as their master, as their ruler, as their authority, and don't worry, I'm not going to spend the time of our sermon comparing Jesus to Darth Vader. I don't think that would be a very quality sermon tonight. But I think if we understand who he was in that fictional universe, we understand what the word Lord is. And maybe if we traveled across the Atlantic Ocean to the United Kingdom, and we were in a culture that had nobility, had royalty, people who were the normal people, they would call someone who was of no nobility a lord, acknowledging them as a master, as a ruler, as someone who had great power, as someone who had authority. But what about Jesus? Do we call Him Lord? Do we think about Him as Lord? When we use the word Lord, does it mindlessly slip off of our tongue? If you're like me, I've not thought of Jesus as a Lord very much. So if we don't think about Jesus as a Lord, what do we think about Him as? If you're like me, the word Savior comes to mind. And I think if we went out into Plainview and we interviewed people and we asked, what do you think about Jesus? Why did He come to the earth? What do you think most of the people would answer? He came to save us from our sins. He's a Savior. And rightfully so. If we went out into Plainview and we asked people their favorite Bible verse, what do you think the most common verse would be? John chapter 3, verse 16. Bethany and I saw a truck that had John 3.16 on the back of it as we, were, uh, as we were turning onto the access road right here. It's very common. And it talks about Jesus coming to this earth and believing on Him will bring salvation. We hear terms like, have you been saved? Or maybe receive Jesus as your Savior. I listen to a lot of podcasts or I listen to sermons on the radio and oftentimes... The preacher will give an invitation, receive Jesus as your Savior. That kind of terminology is not in the Bible. But you know what terminology is about receiving Jesus? It's receiving Jesus as Lord. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul is telling the, the Christians at Colossae, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. I think it's important for us to recognize the Lordship of Jesus tonight. And if we're not careful, Jesus just becomes a Savior, and all He's here to do is to save us from our sins, and there's no reason to submit to Him, there's no reason to obey Him, and He's all good and easy and okay, no matter what you do in your life. But Christ Jesus' Lordship is just as important 
as He is a Savior. So tonight I want to talk about Jesus being both Savior and Lord. Now I want to look at two basic points. The divine plan to make Jesus Savior and Lord. Jesus came to this earth not to just be a Savior, not to just give us a free ticket into heaven, not just to wash away our sins so that we can live however we want to in this earth and then escape hell. But Jesus came to this earth also to become the Lord of all. Number two, I want to talk about the struggle that you and I face to allow Jesus to be our Lord, to bow down to Jesus as our our Lord. So let's begin with the first point. I want to begin in Luke chapter 2 tonight. We could start back in the book of Genesis and we can read about what God told Satan in Genesis chapter 3 when he said that the seed of the woman would crush his head. We could start in Genesis 12 when God promised Abraham that through his family he would bless all nations. We could start at the prophecies of Jesus given to David about a king who would reign on his throne forever. But we're not going to do that tonight. That would take a lot of time to go through that. But what I want to do is I want to go to the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. And I want to begin reading in verse 7. And the Bible says, She, this is Mary, the wife of Joseph, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So we see that Jesus has been born. He has arrived, and no one knows except for just a few people. And God sends an angel in verse 9, and this angel, the Bible says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, these shepherds, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So when Jesus arrived on this earth, this divine messenger comes to these shepherds and tells them who has arrived. And in this passage, this angel uses three different titles to describe Jesus. Number one, a Savior. I think we get that concept pretty well. This is someone who would deliver, who would rescue. The name Jesus insinuates that uh, He is the Savior. The second title that is given to Jesus is the Christ. He is the, the anointed one, the appointed Messiah, spoken of by so many prophets in the Old Testament. And finally, Jesus is the Lord. He is the master. He is the ruler. He is the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. So this angel comes to them and says, Don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news. When we think of the word good news, we think of the gospel. The gospel is being taught to these that there's a Savior, that there's a Lord, and there's a Christ. And He has come, and He is the hope not only of Israel... But he says in verse 10, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. The hope of Israel for thousands of years, for generations upon generations upon generations, is finally here. The one who would restore peace between God and man. So Jesus came to this earth to be Savior, to be Christ, and to be Lord. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul uh, refers to Jesus coming to this earth, and he refers to 
Jesus being Savior and Lord. I want to begin in verse 5. So what Paul's doing here in, in the church of Philippi, he's trying to encourage them to be unified. And he's telling them how to be unified in Christ. And he tells them very specific things to do. Like esteem others better than yourself and to be lowly of mind and to think about the interests of others. And then he points to Jesus as the example and he says, if you want to be the kind of person Christ wants you to be, think of Jesus as the example. Verse 5, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So if you want an example of humility, look to Christ. If you want an example of sacrifice, look to Christ. If you want an example of love, look to Christ. This is the godliest thing that has ever been done on the earth. What Jesus has done. This is the most loving thing. The most self-sacrificing thing that has ever been done. For Jesus to leave heaven, to come to this earth, to be fashioned as a man, and to be a servant. And also to be willing to go to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He experienced all the pain of sin with never experiencing the pleasure of it. He was the perfect sacrifice. Now, if you're like me, you're familiar with these passages. We read these passages a lot. But what Paul does in verse 9 is he talks about what happened after Jesus died on the cross. In verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we think about what Jesus has done, when we think about all the honorable acts across time, there's been a lot of great things done. But this one is the most honorable. And because it was most honorable, God gave him, God the Father gave him the most honor. And it says God exalted him, not just raised him from the dead but God exalted him to the right hand of his uh, to his right hand at his throne in heaven and he has given Jesus the name that is above every single other name Jesus's act was honorable and God blessed that act by resurrecting him from the dead and raising him to the highest position of honor now in verse 10 Paul says at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The tongue represents our words and our thoughts. The, the knee rec, uh, represents our actions. Every person should bow to Christ because of what He has done, because of the honor that He has had in, his, in, his, in this great act. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our glory. He is worthy of our lives. He says every knee should bow. Every knee should confess. Does that mean every knee will in this life? No. As you and I know, there are plenty of people who stand firmly against 
Jesus. But God says they should. And one day these people will bow to him, whether they like it or not. He truly is Lord of lords and King of kings. And that includes all the atheists. That includes men who started other religions. That includes powerful people with lots of money and wealth. Every knee will bow. He says those in heaven, that's the angels. Those on earth, that's humans like you and I who are alive. And even those under the earth, those who have been buried and are dead. We all will, will bow down to Jesus one day. But as Christians, we recognize how great of an act this was. Don't we? Do we appreciate the goodness and the sacrifice of Christ? And if we do, we don't have to wait. We can do it right now. We can bend our knee to the great Lord of Lords, the the one who deserves all of our praise, all of our honor, and all of our glory. See, Jesus came not only to die to save us from our sins, but he came and died and was resurrected so that he can become Lord. In Romans chapter 14, Paul talks about this again. In this particular situation, the church is dealing with struggles in unity once again. This time it was because they were having differences of opinions on keeping specific diets, uh, keeping holy days. And what Paul tells them is, stop judging one another and remember that our true judge is Jesus. And he says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So Paul talks about it and he says, stop worrying about what everyone else is doing and focus on serving the Lord. And he talks about what Christ did in verse 9. He says, for to this end. That's kind of a weird phrase. But that basically means for this purpose. Okay, So for this purpose, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might do what? That he might be both Lord of the dead and the living Christ didn't come to this earth just to save us from our sins. In the sense of escaping hell or going to heaven, He came to be Lord. He came to be Lord of all, both the dead and the living. This was part of the purpose of Him coming to this earth. It wasn't just a minor detail. It wasn't just a byproduct of the salvation of sins. But Him being Lord is... A major goal that he had. He lived and died and lived again so that he might be Lord of all. In verse 8, Paul says, we are the Lord's. What does that word Lord with apostrophe S mean? It means that we belong to Jesus. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. The Bible says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So Paul here says, You are not your own. That means we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to somebody. And as Christians, we belong to the one who bought us. 
And we know that Jesus bought us by spread, not spreading, by shedding his blood so that we might have freedom from our sins. So, when was the last time you made a big purchase? Think about it. When was the last time you made a big purchase? Did you just get this idea to buy something and then make the decision really quickly without thought of what I'm going to use this for or what I'm going to do with it once I buy it or where I'm going to store it to keep it safe? Or did you put a lot of thought into it and a lot of planning? Did you have plans to protect it, to, to protect your investment? Whether it's buying a new car, whether it's buying a new toy, whether it's buying a new house, whatever that is, I think we make those decisions with a plan in place. We're going to move into that house, or we're going to use that car to get around. <clears throat> we're going to buy insurance just in case there's a problem. If we buy a new gun, we're going to put it in our gun safe, or whatever it may be. We have plans for the things that we buy. And when Jesus bought us, don't you think he had a plan for us? Was the plan just for us to continue living our life in sin and doing whatever we want to and then saving us from our sins? No. The answer is that he had a plan for us right now. Jesus saw value in, in buying us. He has a plan for us, but in order for us to fulfill that plan, we have to acknowledge Him as Lord of our life. We have to recognize we are not our own. As we look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus came and spoke to them. This is His apostles. And He's saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So as we think about the divine plan to make Jesus Savior and Lord, we see Jesus has accomplished that. And what, do, what does He say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has become the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And... And what he told his apostles to do was to take that news to the world. To tell people about him reigning on his throne. Restoring God's rule back to the way it should be before sin and death. That kingdom that would last forever. To talk about the forgiveness of sins through, 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 the baptism, that, uh, through baptism. And so what we see here, after this great commission is given... We see the apostles take that message of Jesus to the world. And the first sermon that we see recorded in is Acts chapter 2, verse 36. We're not going to take our time to read through this passage, but I do want to look at the summary that Peter gives at the very end. Let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now there's a lot of things that Peter could have preached about, wasn't there? He could have preached about a lot of things. But we see that he chose to preach about Jesus being Lord and Christ. It wasn't about how to escape hell. It wasn't about how to get to heaven. It was about Jesus fulfilling his role as Christ and as Lord. Now, what we see is, is we see those Jews who were listening recognize that they had crucified 
the one who is Lord and is Christ just seven and a half weeks earlier. And they were pricked to their hearts. In verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when they asked, How can we have peace with the one who is Lord? How can we fix this? What can we do to make amends? You know, <clears throat> the pagan gods in the Old Testament to make amends, they offered blood sacrifices. And we see the cruelty of that. We see parents sacrificing their children on idols in the cruelest and most wicked of acts that I could even think of. God could have asked for that. No. God could have asked for many things, but all He asks is for repentance, baptism, and then we receive the gift of the Spirit. What does repentance mean? When we think about what these men had done, they had resisted the rule of God. They had resisted the teachings of Christ. They had resisted Him to the point that they killed Him. And what does He tell them? Repent of that. Stop your rebellion and come and do what every person should do. Bow your knees to Him and let Him be your ruler and Lord. Serve Him. And then be baptized. What is baptism? We read in Romans 6 how we die to ourselves and that we rise to walk in newness of life. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? I am crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Alright? So when we repent and we're baptized, we are allowing ourselves to be crucified and allowing Christ to reign in our stead. That was the message that Peter gave them. In verse 40, the Bible says, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. We don't know what he says. We don't know what other words that he, he gave, except for be saved from this perverse generation. But these people wanted salvation. They wanted to be right with God. They wanted peace with God. And this was the way that Peter told them that they could have peace. So Jesus is Savior and Lord. And I hope that as we've looked at this, we've only scratched the surface. There are so many other passages that we could look at that talk about Jesus being Savior and Lord. What I want to do now is I want to turn to the everyday struggle that you and I have to bow down to Jesus as Lord. You know, a lot of people are ready and willing to accept Jesus as Savior, right? That's easy, okay? But where we struggle is when we have to submit our lives to Him, where we have to become Lord. And that's why I chose the word struggle. It's a difficult thing. It's something we have to do every day. So let's go back to our original question that, that Jesus asked in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Have you ever thought of that? There's a lot of answers that we could have. But I know the thing that I struggle with. I like to be in control. And if I'm going to call Jesus Lord, and I'm going to let Him be the Lord of my life, that means I am no longer in control. And I think we struggle with that. And here's the reason why. 
Sometimes when we're not in control, we face things we don't like. In Luke chapter 22, verse 41 through 42, the Bible says Jesus was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, his will was to run away from the cross. The Father's will was for him to run to it. And Jesus expresses that. His will and the Father's will were exactly opposed to each other. And Jesus had a choice to allow God, the Father, to steer the car toward the cross or to grab the steering wheel and to drive away as far as possible. What did he choose to do? He chose to submit. But it wasn't easy. It was painful. It was hard. But it was what needed to be done. And he recognized that, and he chose to steer toward the cross and to submit. When you and I go through life, every day we have thousands and thousands of choices to make. A lot of those choices we may not think are significant. A lot of these choices Jesus might not care about, and our will might run along right parallel with Jesus's. Those are not the problem areas. The problem areas is when my will and His will are opposed to each other, when they're against each other. And if we want to know who is Lord of our life, those are the areas that we need to examine. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21, we see a situation where Peter's will and Jesus' will We're against each other. The Bible says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, "Get, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So I know I gave a sermon on this particular passage probably earlier this year. But there's one thing I didn't really talk about a lot. And it was this quote from Peter where he says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, he called him Lord. He acknowledged him as master, as ruler, as the one who makes the choices. But then what is he doing? He's telling him what to do. He says, this is not the right way. His words and his actions were not matching up. Now you and I may not physically say no to Jesus like Peter did, but when we choose to go contrary to his will, we're saying no to him. And we're saying, you can be my master of Sundays, but on Friday nights when my friends are having fun, you're not going to be my Lord. You can say you can be Lord of my life, but not with my wallet. You can be Lord of my life, but not what I watch on my TV, on my computer, and my phone. You can be Lord of my life in every situation, but X, Y, or Z. If He is not Lord of every aspect of our life, is He really Lord? Will He share the throne? I found a quote It says, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. 
If there's areas of our lives that we refuse to give Jesus lordship, then He is not truly our Lord. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus here is talking about mammon is money, if you're unfamiliar with that term. So Jesus is basically saying you can't serve God and money at the same time. You have to make a choice. Who are you going to serve? And he says you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to this one and despise the other. I don't like that verse because you know what I want to do with my heart? I want to share the throne with Jesus. I want him to rule on most parts, but there's a few areas of my life that I don't want him to rule. I want to rule there. I want to do what I want to do, and I don't trust him. You can insert anything in that term for mammon, but I want us to think about Jesus and and ourselves. Who rules the throne of our heart today? You know what I think a lot of us want to do is we want to pick Jesus up on the side of the road and we want him to ride shotgun with us. And we want to drive and we want to be in control. And we don't know the hazards that are up ahead in life? No, we don't. Do we know what's around the corner? No, we don't. Do we know that there's going to be construction over here? No, we don't. Are we going to get lost? Absolutely. Are we going to have a wreck? Absolutely. But I'm in control, so things are good. And I have Jesus here, and he's riding shotgun. And when I get close to the end of my life, I'm going to let him be in absolute control. Because I want to go to heaven, and I want him there. And that's the time I'm going to park my car, and I'll hop in the passenger seat and let him be in control. Isn't that what we want to do? Here's the problem. If you look in the rearview mirror and you see all the train wrecks in, in your life, if I look in the rearview mirror of my life, all the train wrecks, that was because I was driving and because I refused to submit, because I was wanting to reign and rule and be in control. The biggest problems that I faced in my life Areas where I refuse to submit. Unresolved issues. Areas where I refuse to submit to Him as Lord. The least amount of peace. Areas where I refuse to submit. The most amount of pain. Areas where I refuse to submit. And I bet the same is true for you as well. We want to be in control. But we are horrible drivers. Jesus wants us to let Him get in the driver's seat, and he wants to be able to take control. But we want that control, don't we? I love this passage. I know Mark used it this morning. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus doesn't want to just save us from our sins when we die. That is not what he wants. He wants to save us from our sins right now. Right now. He wants to be ruler over our life so that we can stop making dumb decisions. So that we can stop bringing pain into our lives, into the lives of our families and our marriages, our friends, our work relationships, our church. Jesus wants to save us from our sins right now.
I think Mark really illustrated that well this morning. And the way that He can save us from our sins is if we stop sinning and we choose to submit to Him as Lord. Just think about, in the history of mankind, what was the most pleasant time, the most wonderful experience for man? In the history of the world, when was that? It was in the Garden of Eden, right? Why was it so pleasant? Why was it so wonderful? It's because Adam and Eve were fully in submission to God. There was no sin and there was no pain. Now you and I can't go back and restore that situation today. But we can try. And we can give as much effort into that as possible. But what it takes is us giving Jesus the keys and letting Him drive. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A few years ago, this verse was really troubling me. Our society tells us that submission is bad. Freedom is good. Independence is good, right? Jesus' invitation was to come and to take a yoke upon yourself, his yoke upon ourselves. How is that good news? How is that a great invitation? How is that appealing? The reality is that we are all wearing a yoke of some sort. We're wearing a yoke of sin. Maybe it's one of hypocrisy, and you're living a double life. That's a cruel yoke. Maybe it's a yoke of addiction to some substance or pornography. It's a horrible, horrible master. Painful. Maybe it's the yoke of self-righteousness. It's unpleasant. Ultimately, whatever yoke that we are wearing, if it's not Christ, it is not easy. It's insufferable. It's hard. What Christ offers is a yoke that is easy. And He says, if you labor and are heavy laden, come to Me, submit to Me, take the yoke of sin off, and wear My yoke. Allow Me to be in control of your life. And then, you will find rest. You will find peace. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus' invitation is to come and to submit, to let Him be our Lord and our Master. At first, the idea of submission to Him is not so pleasant. But when we think about who He is and how great of a Master He is, it's easy to embrace. Jesus has already proved His love for us and dying for us. He is not like other lords. He is ready to serve. He's ready to make our lives better. So true salvation doesn't happen after this life. Or doesn't have, to, doesn't have to wait to happen to after this life. Excuse me. What we can do today is to get out of the driver's seat. All the train wrecks that might happen in the future, we can avoid them by letting Jesus drive. Let Him be in control. The truest sense of salvation that we can experience doesn't have to wait 
till later. We can experience it now by submitting to Him as Lord. We can submit to Him, not as someone who resists, but we can be thankful. A lot of people don't want to submit. I have not wanted to submit. But when we see the benefits that Jesus can bring as our Lord and Master, it's not something we have to do, it's something that we get to do. So let's strive to submit to Jesus as Lord in all things. We're going to offer an invitation at this time. If you have a spiritual need that the church can help you with, let us know as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.